the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. The Air Force Association welcomes Mr. Greg Hood, AO, to our podcast program. Greg has more than 41 years' experience in the transport industry, beginning his career with almost a decade of service with the Royal Australian Air Force. Post his Air Force time, he had a wide range of operational training and leadership roles across the civilian aviation industry. From 2016, Greg served for five years as Chief Commissioner and CEO of the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, Australia's National Transport Safety Investigation Agency. Now, during this tenure, he inherited the search for MH370, producing 530 investigation reports, personally attended a number of tragic multiple fatality accidents, including Essendon Airport and Renmark, and also attended the loss of the firefighting C-130 near Cooma. Greg holds qualifications as a glider and powered aircraft pilot and as a fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society, a free man in the Honourable Company of Air Pilots and a life member of the Qantas Founders Museum. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have a chat with Mr. Greg Hood, AO. Greg, how are you today? Good morning, Gareth. I'm very well. And yourself? Always well. Always well. And really enjoy doing these chats. I'm learning so much about not only the Air Force, but everything to do with things in the air and sometimes even on the sea. How did you uh, originally choose the Air Force? What was that process? So when I was at school, uh, I was in the Air Training Corps Cadets, something that appealed to me at the time as a young 14-year-old. And so I joined the cadets and, and we were all enthusiastic about aviation and about the Air Force and um, and I uh, also was afforded the opportunity to uh, to learn to fly so I uh, I got my uh, wings in the Air Training Corps uh, at the age of 15 or 16 as um, as a glider pilot and of course it seemed logical mum and dad wanted me to be a school teacher and I went on to do a couple of years of a Bachelor of Education at uni my heart really wasn't in it and so eventually uh, I uh, I left the, the university study and I, I joined the, uh, the Royal Australian Air Force They taught you to fly while you were in the ATC? I did. I think I went solo at 15. While you were at school, who actually did the teaching? Because I was in the ATC at school and that was never offered. In a collaboration with the Adelaide um, Soaring Club at Gawler, two of the uh, instructors in the Air Training Corps were also gliding instructors. One recently passed away, uh, the late Bob Foreman. The other instructor was uh, Rob Moore, and he's still very much alive and active in the uh, in the gliding movement uh, in Australia. But uh, I was very fortunate to have two very dedicated flying instructors who really drummed into me the importance of uh, following procedures in the air and mm. uh, and staying safe. So you actually got your flying licence before you got your driving licence? I did. I went solo in a glider before I went solo in an automobile. Yep, that's true. And did you pass your driver's licence in the first go? (laughs) Yes, I I did that as well in a mini minor. (laughs) Yeah, the the good old mini minor. Now, you join the Air Force... Air traffic controller, is that something that you thought, that's what I want to do, or or how did that channel open for you? Well, it's a strange thing, you know, I don't know if you remember, but in the 1970s, they had these huge big newspaper type publications, and they listed all the the jobs that you might want to be, you know, might want to consider for your career, and uh, I stopped at air traffic controller, and uh, it was something I just always wanted to do, so I actually applied both for... um, Civil air traffic control in 1980 and also military air traffic control and uh, actually got accepted for both, but the military got in ahead of the civilian offer and uh, and that uh, shaped my career. So um, I, uh, I, I got the civil offer while I was already doing my officer training at Point Cook. Wasn't, I thought, was under the impression at least that the process was you actually apply to Point Cook or whatever course you do and then through that course they decide which you are most skilled at is was that not the process no you you apply to be a pilot you apply to be uh, you know navigator you apply to be an air traffic controller administrative officer and the rest of it and uh, so you apply for the for the job that you want to do and sometimes um they may choose a different path for you but uh, they were happy with my choice and uh, so i went on to do um officer training at point cook and then i went on to train a 
to be an air traffic controller at the Air Force Base at East Sail in Gippsland. So tell us about the training process. What was actually involved in that, particularly with ATC, air traffic controller? Yes, so it's uh, um, having finished the officer course, arrived at Sail, uh, once again, an incredibly dedicated and professional bunch of instructors. Um, and uh, you said about learning, you know, similar to the uh, basic aeronautical knowledge that you'd learn on the pilot's course. You, you learn the, um, uh, the rules of the air um, and, uh, and then, of course, you start to learn how to work in a control tower itself in a simulator. And, uh, and then you start to learn how to be a radar controller and a procedural controller. That's, uh, you know, there, there wasn't radar everywhere in 1970s. So a lot of airspace, for example, at sail was controlled, what they call procedurally, without, without radar. So you would, um, uh, you know, you would send a, a departing aircraft 30 degrees off, uh, off an arriving aircraft so that uh, you keep them apart until one climbed out, climbed the other, and then brought them back on track. So uh, a lot of that was done in your, in your head, if you like, back in the 1970s. If you didn't have radar to actually see the blips on the screen, how were you able to, in your head, determine what's where and what's not. So it used to be a huge console in front of you and you had little pieces of paper and you move the little pieces of paper around to represent where the where the aircraft were and, and build yourself an air picture. Goodness um, gracious. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was quite a challenge back in the 1970s. Fortunately, today you have pretty much full surveillance throughout, uh, throughout Australia for air traffic control. Were there many mistakes made with that kind of system? Uh, human error uh, always occurs, uh, you know, whether you're sitting in a cockpit or you're sitting in an air traffic control tower or a radar centre. You know, the important thing is that you continue to, as an air traffic controller, you continue to recheck what you've done, the instructions you've issued, and pick up your mistake before it becomes a serious mistake. I believe you won the Commandant's Trophy Prize. Tell us about that. And don't right. feel like you're bragging. Just, it's a fact. So this goes back to the, actually, to the Air Training Corps cadets uh, before I joined the Air Force. And, um, yeah, I rose uh, to the dizzy heights of cadet under officer. I, I was really committed. Like, like most things that I've done in my life, I, I, I don't do things in half measures. And I, I was very much committed to the Air Training Corps. And uh, as a result, they gave me a trip to Darwin to attend uh, an Air Training Corps camp in, uh, in Darwin. So I flew from Adelaide to, uh, to Darwin. Very proud of myself with my wings on. Yeah. Uh, as a young kid, and, um, and yeah, I, I attended a camp up there in uh, in the Northern Territory uh, as as part of my prize, and they they gave me a big silver cup too. I, I still have somewhere. Okay, all right. We'll we'll jump to 1983. I think you're posting to the Sinai in 1983. Now I, I know you've got some negative and some positive experiences in that respect. Was was the role there air traffic controller? It was uh, flight following, which is very similar to what I, I just um, talked about. I was the shift supervisor in the flight following cell in the in the north camp at uh, El Gora in the Sinai Desert, and uh, Australia had eight Iroquois helicopters. New Zealand had two Iroquois helicopters. There were ten United States Iroquois helicopters, two uh, twin otters from France, and a C-160 Transal. And all of those aircraft were moving about the Sinai Peninsula, basically uh, as part of the um, Camp David Accord signed by Menachem Begin and by Sadat and Jimmy Carter. And, and that was all about limiting the numbers of Egyptian soldiers in the Sinai Peninsula yeah. so there wasn't a threat to Israel. <laughs> yeah, I, I worked in the flight following uh, centre where, um, in, the, in the tactical operations centre where um, we had a huge map, huge magnetic map of the Sinai Desert. We had a little magnetic number for each of the aircraft and uh, we took radio calls so we would um, know where the aircraft were in the Sinai Peninsula at all times. So if an Iroquois, one of the Australian um, Iroquois helicopters, uh, let's say MFO 083, got airborne at one checkpoint, heading for another checkpoint, then we'd move the little tag on the, on the wall around and uh, we'd, we'd keep what's called search and rescue watch for, uh, for all the aircraft. We also had an incident during the Rolf Harris concert. Uh, so uh, yeah, there was a Rolf rollover of vehicle, wasn't there? Yes, yes. So Rolf Harris was uh, was doing a uh, like a USO Bob Hope type of concert sure. for uh, for the troops at Sinai. When he got off the airplane, we'd sewed flying suits together, so all of us had three legs uh, to to emulate <laughs> Jake, Jake the pig. Jake the pig. Yeah, um, that's it. But anyway, he uh, he was doing his concert, and uh, and my pager went off. And so I got on my trusty treadley in the middle of the desert and I rode down to the Technical Operations Centre uh, and there'd been a, uh, a vehicle rollover and, um, and uh, several people had been injured and they needed two evacuation helicopters to take the injured from the middle of the desert into Israel. Anyway, I, I rode my bike back to the concert and I, I spoke to the, to the CO, Boggy Landale, and uh, 
I uh, called out the uh, the duty crew, and uh, but but there was nobody else that was sober, you know, because we only had one standby helicopter crew, and everyone else had had a few beers because Rolf Harris was in town. And uh, anyway, uh, the CO Boggy Landale and the uh, the Kiwi Flight Commander uh, FHP Parker, um, uh, they flew the flew the other aircraft. They went out into the desert in the middle of the night, uh, landed and picked up the injured. And then my job was to do the negotiation between the Egyptian and Israeli authorities to get the helicopters safely across the border, uh, because uh, there are you know service to air missiles up and down the yeah. the border between the two states. And um, so I uh, I did that liaison, and eventually uh, the, I got the instructions from the Israelis that um, uh, the helicopters were to proceed uh, um, north five miles over water, turn right heading zero uh, seven zero. That's towards Tel Aviv and then uh, to contact Israel Control. So, uh, yeah, in the middle of the night as a young 23-year-old, I, I, I felt uh, felt like uh, pretty it was a pretty, important, yeah. pretty important job, and uh, and they got the injured to, uh, to Tel Aviv safely. So, um, yeah, it was a fascinating six months uh, in the Sinai Desert. Yeah, it was a, a very positive experience uh, overall to work with uh, defence forces from 12 other nations or so. Yeah. And, um, There's one thing you are leaving out in that d- description of your... You were officer in charge of barbecues, I believe. I was officer in charge of barbecues, yep. So every yeah. Wednesday, in fact, I took over from a sergeant called Andy Croker who showed me the ropes once. So we, uh, it take, took about two hours to get through the checkpoints between um, Egypt and Israel, and then we, we'd either go to Ashdod or Ashkelon and, uh, and, and shop for barbecue supplies. But to do that... Uh, we, uh, we we could maximise the number of supplies we got by changing money on the black market. Maybe you shouldn't be telling me this, but go uh, on. <laughs> I think it's not in 83. So yeah, okay, right. The statute of limitations is gone. But <laughs> we, uh, we'd stand around. And so this is, um, um, this is what I was taught. We'd stand around in front of the bank. Um, we'd have our 500 US dollars um, in, in cash. And, uh, and we'd look at the window in the bank and we'd see what the exchange rate was for Israeli shekels. And um, and then somebody would come and approach you, and uh, and uh, and uh, he say, "You have the money to change?" I said, "Yeah, we have American dollars, five hundred American dollars." And he said, "I'll give you this rate." And I said, "No, I can get that rate in the bank." Uh, and then he'd go away again, and he'd come back, and he said, "Okay, I'll give you this rate, and a much better rate than the bank." And then you'd go to a kosher pizza bar, and you'd do the exchange of American dollars for Israeli shekels, and uh, and then you'd go to the um, uh, one of the huge supermarkets. It's like a Costco. And uh, and you'd buy the barbecue supplies, and then you'd uh, drive the, uh, the the you know four or five hours back um, to the uh, to the base for the barbecue supplies, and uh, and you'd have the weekly Aussie barbecue. So <laughs> yeah, fascinating time. We we'd always reverse the car into the car park, and you'd always have a, a mirror on a stick to to look under the vehicle before you uh, before you got back on board. So to um, make sure, <laughs> yeah, good good learnings for a young fella. Yeah, a, a highlight of your military career, officer in charge of barbecues. <laughs> But you come back. You come back to Australia or back to Darwin in 1985, and it's a sad incident. You, you it, tell us about the loss of Ian Davidson. Yeah, so uh, um, Ian Davidson, a uh, very fine uh, friend, uh, a young young fellow, um, Mirage pilot, and um, and uh, they were conducting a, an air defence exercise uh, about 62 miles to the west of Darwin in the Arafura Sea, and. Um, the uh, the uh, particular manoeuvre they were practising was that uh, Pete Condon was um, doing an intercept on uh, on Davo, and um, and then they did another intercept on on each other. And anyway, uh, in the uh, in the final moments, um, Davo was coming down uh, behind the CO behind Pete Condon, and uh, and uh, um, you know you can only speculate what happened, but um, uh, looks like it flew into the sea. And uh, Pete Condon issued the mayday call and came back via a ground controlled approach at GCA, being talked back down uh, mm-hmm. because he was obviously uh, uh, significantly um, disturbed by the by the by the event. And uh, and they uh, they commenced a search. <coughs> you know, somebody thought they saw a flare, which got everybody's hopes up. But um, yeah, Ian's uh, body was never recovered and uh, lies out there in the Arafura Sea. So yeah. uh, at his uh, at his funeral service. Um, yeah, all there was uh, was it was his cap and his gloves crossed underneath uh, uh, on a velvet cushion with his wings pinned in the middle, mm, mm. And, uh, and and very sad in, indeed. And um, uh, the whole squadron, the whole base, um, obviously felt the loss of this this very fine yeah. young man, Ian Davidson. Yeah. To, rest in to what extent, Greg, would 
that incident and also the rollover vehicle, even though it wasn't an aeroplane, play any role in determining your thinking for the future in terms of air safety and research? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you lose friends to aviation accidents, it does um, impact the way in which you think about safety, about risk management, and it also motivates you to do as much as you possibly can to prevent a loss of life in the future. Mm. And uh, I found myself in my, you know, my final job as a chief commissioner of the Australian Transport Safety Bureau. Uh, I went to a number of um, tragic accidents and uh, one of the one of the important roles, as well as doing the, you know, the public relations, uh, you know, door stops, press conferences, mm. and the rest of it, another of the very important functions was uh, was dealing with the next of kin, and uh, you know, in in such a tragic time uh, as somebody losing their life to an aircraft accident, a shipping accident, a, a rail accident, um, you know, it's it's very important uh, that you know that be dealt with sensitively and. Um, and I had several um, interactions mm. with next of kin when I when I worked as chief commissioner at the ATSB. Mm. Talking to a lot of people, for example, the Granville train disaster and Cyclone Tracy in Darwin. Talking to people who are on the coalface in those instances, it it impacts on them personally as well. Not only the fact that someone has lost someone, but the person giving that information or helping has an impact on the. To what extent were you in? impacted in those circumstances oh, yeah certainly i I, uh, I actually found myself at the atsb I, I in quick succession i went to a number of um horrific uh, fatal aircraft accidents uh, one being the uh, the loss of a super king air uh, when it impacted the shopping center the dfo shopping center at essendon airport mm. uh, killing the uh, the pilot and uh, and four american golfers and uh, I went from that accident uh, only weeks later to a uh, conquest accident at Renmark where um, uh, an inspector for the Civil Aviation Safety Authority was testing two pilots and during a, a practice engine failure manoeuvre, the uh, aircraft was subject to a loss of control and the three of them were killed and the, the CASA uh, flying ops inspector was a mate of mine, Steve Guerin. Mm. So very, very grisly, very tragic accidents and you, I found myself uh, with, with some anxiety mm. and I, I've I've never been an anxious person, but I, I found myself with, with anxiety and I, I sought some help for that because um, it was directly related to, uh, um, you know, repeated attendance at uh, that horrific aircraft accident. Sure, and, uh, sure. With that, you also, you know, when you do go and get help like that, you also learn to, to um, ha- how to build up your defence mechanisms for the mm. future. And uh, I continue to go to, uh, to a number of, uh, of tragic accidents, but I was much... Um, much better able to uh, deal with the situation to deal with it yeah let's just go back and to conclude the RAAF side of your career uh what year did you actually retire from the air force 1990 so i did just on just under 10 years i i started in 80 finished in 90 uh, my last posting was uh townsville which uh which i loved i went and bought a boat and uh and uh, used to uh used to go out to phantom and orpheus island and go water skiing and uh, and snorkeling and stuff so um fantastic great Right why, place to go. Why did you in 1988 did you get to learn or start to learn Khmer? Uh, so at the time, the Australian government was preparing to, following the Pol Pot regime, send a uh, um, a peacekeeping force to Cambodia, and uh, um, because of my involvement in Sinai running flight following, initially uh, it was thought that um, uh, that uh, we may establish some similar type of operation in Cambodia. And so in preparation for that, uh, uh, I think I was the only air traffic controller, the only uh, Air Force, I think, no, a couple of Air Force. But anyway, they took a a couple of dozen of us uh, down to the School of Languages at Point Cook and uh, and, uh, put us through the um, colloquial Khmer language course. Uh, and a lot of that is um, about living the language. So we'd go out to Springvale and we'd mix with the uh, Cambodian expat community. Mm. Um, if you didn't know how to ask for rice in colloquial Khmer, then you didn't get any rice. Um, <laughs> you very but, quickly uh, learned. <laughs> yeah, you quickly, you very quickly learn um, learn to speak the language. So uh, yes, that was uh, at the School of Languages in '88. So is your Khmer still pretty strong, or is you've, you've uh, every lost... now and again I run into somebody and I'll surprise the living daylights out of them by <laughs> coming out with a couple of phrases. But um, no, it uh, and of course the peacekeeping force never went. Um, so uh, uh, it's it's not a skill I often use. I have to say. No, I'm just as an anecdote of my own, I I learnt 
a long time ago, Mandarin. And uh, I, the shock on some people's faces when you go into a restaurant and the, the waiters are talking to each other and they say something that maybe they shouldn't say and you, you answer them back. Oh, oh, you suddenly get great service. Anyway, moving right along. Oh, you left in 1990 the Air Force. Almost straight away you joined Air Services Australia in, in the uh, Civil Air Traffic Control. How did that happen? A whole lot of us left the Air Force at the same time because there was a rumour that uh, it's the last time that Air Services is ever going to recruit uh, from the Air Force. And uh, so um, a lot of us weighed it all up and we decided that we would join the civil side of things. And um, and as soon as we'd resigned and all ready for the course, they, they cancelled the course. Um, oh. And so one of the guys that uh, had resigned from the Air Force with me wrote to the chairman of the civil aviation uh, authority as it was then and that happened to be dick smith uh, and uh saying how outrageous it was that uh, that this you know that we've left the air force and all ready to do this course and the course has been cancelled and uh, next thing you know the course is put back on again so um we uh, we undertook and it's it's a little bizarre to have to undertake a six-month course of training to to convert from civil to military air traffic control because you're doing the same job basically. But we went and did the um, the six month course in Melbourne, and uh, and then I got posted to uh, Adelaide air traffic control and um, uh, stayed there for a while. But uh, I've always been keen to uh, expand my knowledge, skills, etc. So I volunteered to go and work in Alice Springs Tower, and uh, and that was a fascinating. How is that experience. different? Once again, it was uh, no no radar in Alice Springs at that time, in the, and this is uh, early nineties. Um, so you had to work everything out in your head and, and using bits of paper like like I talked about before. And at that time, uh, it was quite busy because um, uh, all of your jets uh, would go from, let's say, Cairns, Sydney, Adelaide, Melbourne. They'd all go to Alice first and then they'd all change passengers and then they'd all go out to the Rock and then they'd come back from the Rock and then they'd all go to other places again. So it actually was quite a quite a busy place at the time. But, of course, these days the um, most of your, your jet traffic goes straight to Ayers Rock. Yeah, I'm fascinated that you're saying that you still use. This is 1992. You're in Alice Springs. That you're still using the paper design. That means that films like Airport, when this, they show scenes with radars, that, that's wrong. They shouldn't be doing that. Well, I think United States is is uh, different. They they were much more advanced uh, than us. They they had radars all over the United States. Um, pretty much after the um, Second World War, where, of course, Australia, we, we started with radar down the what they call the J-curve, basically from, from Cairns to Adelaide. Um, but the rest of the country was, was pretty much left without surveillance until around about 1998. Wow. Uh, and, of course, uh, we've overtaken the rest of the world now. Our uh, air traffic control systems in Australia uh, are, the, are the finest in the world, the, the most advanced of anywhere in the world. And uh, we have full surveillance coverage um, uh, using the, the latest technology, automatic dependent surveillance broadcast, and uh, and so pretty much um, uh, we're, we're better placed than anyone else in the well, world now. Well, that's that's a great tribute to the Australians. How did you get the job at Tasmania uh, Uni teaching air traffic controlling? I taught uh, at, the, at the RAF School of Air Traffic Control at East Sale in 1988-89, um, and I was in Alice Springs Tower and... Uh, I'd seen a lot of the outback. I'd, I'd been to all the swimming holes in Alice Springs and uh, <laughs> done all the local walks. And um, and after a while, the uh, you know, the, pretty much the job is the same day in, day out. And, and I'm always looking to do something else. So uh, um, the position came up teaching air traffic control at uh, the University of Tasmania in Launceston. And uh, I went down for an interview and I was successful in uh, gaining a, a position there. So I, I taught a, a bunch of young people to... Um, the skills of air traffic control and uh, and of course um, a number of those went on to work throughout Australia. In 2002 you promoted or get the job as manager of the Melbourne Air Traffic Control Centre and that is the largest one in the Southern Hemisphere. I would have thought Sydney was. Why? How has it come? It's Melbourne. So in fact Mel- Melbourne actually encompasses Sydney, Adelaide, Perth and, and all of that airspace. In fact uh, it's about 6% of the world's surface area is controlled from the Melbourne Air Traffic Control Centre. And, uh, for example, if you fly from uh, Sydney to uh, Dubai, 
uh, you're actually being controlled by Melbourne Air Traffic Control for about 60% of that flight. So our, our airspace goes right out to almost to the to Maldives. There's two major centres in Australia, one in Melbourne, one in Brisbane. So it's about 6% of the world surface area from Melbourne, about 5% from Brisbane, 11% of the world surface area is controlled from, uh, from Australia. That's unbelievable. So that means when a plane takes off, let's say, at Sydney Airport, it's a Melbourne air traffic controller based in Melbourne that's controlling it, or is there a, a sub-branch in Sydney? Yeah. So I'll use the example of Canberra if I can. So um, if, you take, if you take off from Canberra, the first controller that you talk to is actually in the physical control tower in Canberra. Right. So there's, there's a surface movement controller that looks after you on the taxiways and a tower controller that looks after you uh, sequencing on and off the runways. So there's, there's two, two controllers in, um, in Canberra Tower, basically. But as soon as your wheels are up, uh, you're painting on a, on a radar screen and controlled by somebody from Melbourne. Wow. Uh, and, and it's exactly the same now for Adelaide and, and uh, for Sydney, slightly different. Sydney has a, um, about uh, 30 miles of, uh, of, of airspace that's controlled by people in Sydney at the moment. But the longer-term plan is to, to run all of the airspace in Australia from the two centres, from, from Melbourne and Brisbane. So when your wheels are up off the deck, you're controlled from one of the major centres. So that would mean that the, st- the, the staffing of the Melbourne ATC is, would be pretty significant, pretty large. When I was there as manager, Melbourne Centre, we had about five five hundred people, uh, and that included, uh, um, you know, people uh, uh, responsible for um, uh, engineering as well as uh, as their traffic control. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a large operation, significantly large operation, and and I was very honoured as a young fella to get the opportunity to be, to the, be manager. the manager of the facility. Yeah. Now you bought uh, a, I think I've got the code right, a BD four, which is a home built aircraft. Is that right? Yep, it's an amateur-built aircraft. Uh, it's got a Lycoming 360, which is a 180-horsepower motor. And, um, yeah, I bought it from my father. He had it for a, a decade or so, and then I had it uh, after him. So, Travelled all over the country, flying the aeroplane and testing out my air traffic control services. By home-built, that means the person who buys it builds it themselves? Is that what... what the- yeah, it was a, it was a kit builder. It's a kit aircraft. So um, when it originally uh, came to Australia, it came in a kit and uh, with, a, with instructions and... Um, uh, somebody in uh, in Adelaide uh, put it together, and uh, and in fact, it only flew 100 hours before the uh, the original builder um, landed, and the nose wheel collapsed, and uh, he gave himself uh, such a fright, he put it back into a hangar in pieces, and it stayed there for I think the best part of a decade, uh, and um, and then my father got the urge to have an aeroplane, and uh, he paid to have it put back together, and uh, he flew it for a number of years, and then. Uh, and then I bought it from him, so I had a had a, had a great time flying all over the country. You've still and, uh, got to get an air licence to fly it, though, have you? Yes, you still need a uh, um, private pilot licence okay. to fly it. Didn't, yeah. didn't one recently just crash and or off the Gold Coast, or, or have I got that wrong? Oh no, yeah, there's uh, um, you know there's accidents every day. I, I'm on the notification system for SMSs from air services, and uh, every every day there's uh, um, something happens. I think yesterday was a uh, um, near Essendon. There was an engine failure, and a pilot put a light aircraft into a uh, into a park, um, safely walked away. So. Uh, Every day in Australia. Okay, all right. Uh, That's one aircraft I don't think I'll buy. I'll stick as a passenger. Uh, You go from Melbourne, I believe, to Canberra to manage the national towers and services? Yes, yes. So in Australia there's um, 19 uh, regional towers, um, places like uh, Hamilton Island, Mackay, Rockhampton, um, uh, Parafield, uh, Bankstown, Camden. there's, There's 19 towers. And uh, and I was uh, um, I was sent to Canberra to manage the 19 uh, regional towers and um, and uh, also uh, regional airspace services. So um, yeah, that was a. What's the function uh, of those towers? Well, who do they control? Mainly light aircraft. So they're the secondary control towers in major cities, like in Sydney, you'd have yeah. uh, Bankstown and Camden. Uh, Melbourne's got Essendon and Moorabbin. Uh, Adelaide's got Parafield um, and uh, uh, Brisbane's got Archerfield. So secondary um, airports for, for uh, capital cities, mainly managing flying training, Royal Flying Doctor Service, you know, the, the lighter side okay. of general okay. aviation. Uh, but, of course, all of the uh, um, the other regional ports handle, um, you know, traffic going to Hamilton Island, for example, very popular uh, destination for an air traffic controller. Uh, they live on the mainland. They, they catch the boat across with the airport workers and the, they have their own golf cart. Okay, and then they, okay. they, they drive the golf cart to work in the control tower in the daytime 
and uh, and then they go home again. And what is the communication process between, let's say, the, the Melbourne Air Traffic Control Centre and these regional ones? I mean, I know that the obviously the Melbourne one would be controlling international and large domestic flights, but there still is there still are planes in the air. So, what's the cooperation process? There are. So uh, all of the airspace itself is, is staffed. So once they leave the the, um, the the immediate area, let's say you talk about Melbourne, let's say they've flown out of Moorabbin, and once they've flown out of uh, the, the tower, like line of sight from the tower, uh, they would then change frequency and be so provided with, with services from the from the Melbourne Air Traffic Control Centre. Mate sings. How did you in late 2006 end up at the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, or CASA? So it's a funny story. I, I uh, um, after I'd been manager of regional services, the the board of air services at the time was keen to uh, to to look at um, uh, diversifying its business. You know, so the the revenue of air services comes purely from aviation charges. It's not paid for by government at all. It's all by aviation charges. So if something happens like a pandemic, and your and your activity reduces, um, then you don't have any revenue. So at the time in 2006, they said, "Oh, we want you to to be a, to to help us diversify our business." And uh, and so they sent me overseas as manager international business. And I I, uh, I went overseas trying to sell aviation rescue and firefighting consultancies and air traffic control consultancies. And uh, I didn't really sell anything. And I, I I didn't get to fly my airplane. I didn't get to see my partner. So I uh, I went looking for a uh, a job that. Um, that I was more suited to, and uh, I initially got appointed as a um, general manager for personnel and licensing in um, in CASA, and, and then uh, not long after, a new CEO arrived, and I became executive manager operations. So I spent just best part of six years, uh, um, you know, leading a team that that did all of the oversight sure. for uh, regulatory oversight for. Um, uh, aircraft operations in Australia. While you were there, was Dick Smith still involved in any way, shape, or form? No, but I, I, I can tell you a story about Dick. Please, I, that's what I was going to ask you. Fantastic. No, listen. I, I uh, in recent years, uh, when I was CEO of of the ATSB, Chief Commissioner of the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, I uh, I did the St Vincent de Paul CEO sleepout uh, to raise funds for Australia's homeless, and I uh, I. I uh, I thought when I did it the first year, I thought, I wonder who who I know that's got buckets of money that, that <laughs> might sponsor me. You know, so for example, I wrote to Alan Joyce, uh, CEO of Qantas, um, a very fine fellow. And uh, next thing you know, I'm sitting at my computer and it goes, ding! Uh, you've received a new donation for um, a new sponsorship uh, for your sleep out from uh, Alan Joyce personally. I thought, wow, um, that that's impressive. Anyway, I'm sitting there at the computer again and it goes, ding! You've received a new sponsorship from DSI Foods, Dick Smith International Foods. And I thought, oh, good on Dick. He sponsored me as well. And I scrolled down a bit for $50,000. Wow. So so uh, you'll never hear a bad word said about uh, Richard Harold Smith from from, uh, from my lips because he's an extraordinarily generous man and um, – and uh, and a famous aviator and and uh, a very fine Australian. So, yeah, I uh, I I, uh, I won the uh, you, you won the, the, prize, the donation most, prize. <laughs> most funds run raised in that year, but um, no, I uh, uh, that's a charity that, that that means a lot to me, and I, I raised over a hundred thousand dollars for the oh that's four, awesome four years that I did the sleep out and. Um, I got Dick to thank for uh, for almost half of that. Good on you, Greg. Well, you leave CASA in well, 2013, and you're back to Air Services Australia, and you were in charge of, or had, or involved with something like a thousand three hundred plus staff. Yeah, so basically, uh, Executive General Manager Air Traffic Control. So uh, myself and my team of thirteen hundred and seventy eight. Uh, ran the nation's air traffic control for uh, for the best part of four years, so uh, very uh, um, very honoured to be given the uh, responsibility and accountability for for running the nation's air traffic control network. And um, you know they very highly trained, very highly professional uh, bunch of people in Australia mm. should be very grateful. Uh, often taken for granted, but uh, you know day and night, twenty four seven, three sixty five, uh, these people keep the air traffic control system running in Australia. Mm. Probably the most significant air story in the last 30 years has to be MH370 and its disappearance on March 18, 2014. Now, without going into what you did, how did you get involved in that? What was? Did someone knock on your door like, ding, the email went, we want you or what? 
Well, in the, when the aircraft disappeared, um, you know, the, the, the government was very keen to become involved, particularly the, um, um, the former Prime Minister, the Honourable Tony Abbott, and uh, he had a real passion for, for wanting to find the aircraft. And uh, there was some discussion um, uh, amongst government whether uh, the people to conduct the, uh, the search should be from the Australian Maritime Safety Authority or the uh, Australian Transport Safety Bureau. So uh, uh, that, was, that preceded me, but uh, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau was given the task of conducting the underwater search for MH370 out in the Indian Ocean. And it was well underway. And, and so uh, as the incoming CEO, Chief Commissioner, I inherited the, uh, the search. It was only two weeks into, uh, into my appointment when um, Australia had expended uh, 60 million. All up, uh, it was 200 million expended by the Chinese, the Malaysians and the Australians. Mm. Mm. And the Australian government took the decision that, that we were going to discontinue the search. In fact, the, the three governments, uh, the tripartite governments, Malaysia, China and Australia all made that decision. So I found myself in week two of the, uh, of the Chief Commissioner of the ATSB role of, uh, of flying to uh, Malaysia with um, the minister at the time, uh, the Honourable Darren Chester, to basically make an announcement that, you know, once we'd finished uh, the, the current search pattern that we were conducting, then uh, uh, we would be uh, uh, halting the search unless there was significant new evidence which would give us a better idea of the location of the aircraft. Uh, yeah, I think it's fair to say I, I did put the case to government saying, listen, this is really important. You know, Boeing 777 aircraft don't just disappear. It's really important that we continue searching. But obviously, uh, you know, from a from a financial perspective, you know, $60 is a lot of money <coughs> and can do a lot of good in, in other places as well. So that was uh, the decision of government at the time. And uh, I fully supported that and uh, went over to uh, to Malaysia to make the announcement that the search will be wound up. I read somewhere or heard somewhere that a Qantas captain, I think his name is Peter Foley, at some stage in the last year or so suggested that we should keep looking because he's found some process with ham radio operators now I don't understand it, but the way they talk to each other when a when an international when a plane crosses one of those lines, it can be tracked. Are you familiar with that story? Well, Peter Foley was actually the search director. Did a very fine job, and uh, he and his team felt it very keenly that we weren't successful. But the you know the amount of information available to us, uh, none of it was um, information which which really gives us a, a, a very finite destination of where the, where the aircraft went in, but. Um, you know the the final search reports are very fine documents on the ATSB website, and uh, and you know Peter Peter would be a great if the search was ever reopened. Peter would be a great search director again mm. to uh, to find he's, he's uh, certainly motivated still to uh, to find the uh, find the aircraft. We we had a number of interactions with uh, the next of kin internationally as well as in Australia, and uh, you know for their sakes uh, and 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 uh, for the for the sake of uh, aviation learning, I, I certainly hope it's found one day. Um. I don't fly. Uh, I've never been in the Air Force um, and I don't understand radar. So therefore, what are, maybe you can help me understand. Surely when an international flight like MH370 takes off, there is constant contact between it and the ground with radar. How can it disappear? The, at, just after the top of the climb, um, they were changing frequencies from um, Malaysia to the, to the airspace to the north of Malaysia, and then the aircraft disappeared, if you like. So it appears as if the electronic systems were either, either failed or were turned off in, in the cockpit. There was some uh, primary radar that, uh, um, that was provided from the Malaysian authorities, and, and that's how we could tell that the aircraft then appeared to turn left and head over Penang and then yeah. up to the end of, um, of, of basically the Indonesian archipelago. And, and then uh, we, we had several handshakes, uh, radio handshakes, uh, satellite handshakes from the aircraft as it, as it proceeded south. But, um, yeah, it, it appears as if uh, either the systems were disabled or failed, uh, which meant that uh, we weren't able to track the aircraft after it left the Malaysian radar coverage. I would... Also, I've been in reading it when that was all part of it, because I was reporting about it on air, was under the impression that even if you turn all of the device, all of the devices in the plane failed or were turned off, there is still something within the engine itself that handshakes with a satellite. Is that right? Yeah, that's, ha that's what happened. So we had about, I think it was five from memory uh, of those handshakes, uh, uh, which were able to derive that the aircraft had turned south 
uh, into the Indian Ocean, but but really that that's not accurate, um, you know, position information. That sure, it just gives sure. you a, a rough idea. I certainly know that uh, the families, they still need closure. So um, how do you deal with that? I don't know. All aircraft have a black box, right? They do. What is the function of that black box? There are two black boxes, if you like, or two uh, recording devices on the aircraft. One is a cockpit voice recorder, uh, and that records anything, any noises that that occur in the cockpit, alarms, conversations, um, sneezes, whatever you like. So everything in the cockpit is recorded, but that's a two-hour device. And so uh, it only records the information for the last two hours. The other one is a flight data recorder, which records all of the information for the last 24 hours. Uh, th- and that records all of the, the electronic information in the cockpit. So it'll, it'll, it'll record the, the altitude, the, it'll record the speed, uh, it'll record the temperature, it records, uh, records anything uh, to do with the programming, the flight management system, etc. So okay. anything that's involving the, the electronic side of the cockpit is recorded by the flight data recorder. You know, we, we are hopeful that six kilometres down in the bottom of the ocean that that can be recovered. Very little oxygen for uh, for things to rust down there. And uh, we we have in the past recovered one that was seven years in the ocean and it it, uh, it replayed the data fine. So we, we're we still hopeful that... Uh, so that black data. box, they don't, it doesn't emit any signal. So like an EPIRB, you can actually track from the black box? It does. There, there is a, a locator signal, but... Uh, it's only a very short duration. I think less than 36 hours, okay. it will go off. And, and uh, so, unless you're, 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 uh, you've got ships and uh, an aircraft on standby to go and listen for it, um, then then really it's not not much good. What is your observations or feelings about then the uh, commercial airliner MH17, which was shot down over Ukraine? Well, I think it's um, that kind of event had not occurred in recent history. Uh, a lot of aircraft in their in their uh, flight planning departments had rerouted aircraft already around that uh, airspace because of the instability, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and for whatever reason the Malaysian airlines ha- had not done so, and uh, and therefore it was um, uh, it was shot down. But um, the Dutch have written a, a very good investigation report into the loss of MH17, and it recommends a number of changes to uh, the procedures for um, routing around countries which might be suffering um, instability, and that's been broadly adopted by the rest of the mm. world now. So, Okay. So, Greg, with a person like you who has the expertise, how are you able to actually determine that two Russians and one Ukrainian were responsible? How can you work that out from what you find at the crash site? What do you look for? The ATSB actually sent two investigators uh, to a company, Sir Angus Houston, to the MH17 crash site, but the majority of the investigative work uh, because of the nature of the um, terrorism, if you like to call it that, uh, uh, was was conducted by the Australian Federal Police. Um, so uh, even though that was an aircraft, um, when there is unlawful interference with an aircraft, that ceases to become a, uh, a transport safety investigation. It becomes a, um, uh, an investigation by the Australian Federal Police in conjunction with the, um, the police forces in, in Holland. Let's go away from MH17 and look at domestic accidents that you've been involved in. You've mentioned the one at Essendon Airport. You've mentioned the one at Renmark. What about the C-130 firefighter near Kuma? Were you involved with that? Yes, yes. So, the uh, you know, we're sitting back at ATSB. January is usually a very quiet time in the public service. And I got a call from Shane Carmody, who was the Director of Aviation Safety at CASA, saying, uh, have you heard about the C-130 that's that's been lost firefighting? And... and uh, uh, it's almost unbelievable because you just don't anticipate that such a large aircraft would be lost. We, uh, even without initial confirmation, we began the planning process to deploy a team to a place called Peak View near Kuma. Um, we didn't have anyone that's uh, specifically experienced on C-130 Hercules aircraft, so I picked up the phone and I called the Air Force. I called um, Director of Flying Safety in the Air Force uh, and uh, said, listen, I think I'm going to need a investigator uh, with engineering experience on the C-130. And he said, done. And so they, uh, uh, he was on holiday in Harvey Bay and they, they, put, uh, they put the Air Force uh, investigator on a Super King Air and flew him from Harvey Bay down to Kuma to join the team. And, uh, and we deployed. A, it's, a, it's the largest aircraft of its type that we've ever investigated. It was the longest we've ever been on an accident site. It's the largest team we ever sent. And one of the largest debris fields, if you like, I think it was about 280 metres long from where the, 
the left wing first struck the ground and and then cartwheeled up the uh, up the hillside in a in a fireball. So uh, quite a surreal experience. There really wasn't much left uh, recognisable of the aircraft except for the tail. You know, the very first thing we we did was uh, was meet with the police and the rural fire service at uh, Cooma Town Hall talked about the hazards it was still an active fire zone at the time and in fact during the month we're on site we're evacuated three times from the um, from the aircraft accident site because of uh, fire. declaration of watch and act but yeah we, we took a team of, of uh, just under 10 people including the the air force uh, investigator and uh, we commenced firstly making the site safe for everybody and, uh, and that included getting an arborist in to cut down a whole bunch of trees that looked okay, but they'd been burnt up the middle. Mm. And, of course, uh, uh, there are many hazards on an aircraft site, including the retardant. We weren't sure about any carcinogenic qualities of the fire retardant. Uh, the, the, uh, the site was covered in, um, in uh, aviation fuel. Uh, there were pressurised uh, canisters and containers that were um, like, like uh, struts off uh, off the undercarriage that um, are subject to to exploding. So there there are a number of hazards that we had to make safe first. It was interesting to to, to deal with the journalists, obviously very hungry for the story. Uh, two journalists were arrested by the police trying to uh, use back roads and then walk across the fire ground to uh, to get the first photographs, if you like. I ended up doing doorstop every day. I was, I was on site for a week and a half and did a doorstop every day for, for the journos. And then we uh, we agreed that uh, two television cameras could come in and get the, the file footage for for, um, for everybody, for the other stations. And, and they were grateful for that. And, of course, the Army brought out the next of kin. Sorry, the, the Rural Fire Service brought out the next of kin and the Army brought them out to site in an MRH chopper so I um, we, we rehearsed very carefully the uh, um, the interaction with next of kin we uh, had everything set up we had a, a marquee set up next to the accident site so we had portable toilets I met the uh, uh, the family the one pilot the captain uh, had his wife his 12 um, year old son and 72 year old mm. father uh, came out and the other pilot uh, his wife came out and uh, so I met them at the chopper and, and I took them to the toilets and then into the briefing tent and we uh, we basically expressed our, um, uh, uh, you know, our sympathy and our condolences and said nothing today is going to be easy looking at this accident site, but here's what we propose to do. I'm going to tell you what we know. I'm then going to talk about the safety or safety because we're going to go for a walk along the accident site and then we'll, we'll go and, and uh, at any time if you're, uh, if you're too upset, you can come back here. This is a safe place for you to, to return to. Yeah. So. After the briefing, we uh, I started at the bottom where the left wing had struck a, a tree, and uh, and then we walked up the uh, you know the burnt debris for about 280 metres. We paused at the cockpit, and um, first officer's wife said, uh, "What are the the red flags for? The three red flags?" And I said, "Well, that's where your husband and and uh, and his <coughs> colleagues were removed from the wreckage." Yeah, we, we proceeded to uh, to return to the marquee and uh, and then Chopper returned about an hour later to, to take them back to Sydney. Mm. But um, not everybody does that. Uh, Australia is quite unique. A lot of the international investigation agencies won't let uh, anyone go on to... Um, uh, onto the accident site, sure. but uh, sure. we feel very strongly, uh, we felt very strongly that um, it's not our call to make. If they wanted to be present where their husbands lost their lives, then we should mm. facilitate that with empathy, and and uh, and that's what we did, and and that's what we continue to do. And how were you personally affected? I once again, we we uh, I'm not sure I would have taken a 12 year old boy to to see such carnage, but uh, you know we we leave that decision to the next of kin, and uh, I just I felt just incredibly sad, and once again determined, you know, that we should find out as much as we can about what happened, such that uh, you know that the, yeah. the recurrence can be prevented in the future. Was there a black box found for that, or was it burnt? No, it was a very good question, Gareth. So they're, they're, um, the aircraft was equipped with a, um, a flight, uh, sorry, a cockpit voice recorder. That was one of the first things we found. The, found, uh, the aircraft crashed on a Thursday. We found the cockpit voice recorder uh, in the tail on the Sunday. We removed it straight away uh, via road back to Canberra into the engineering facilities where we, uh, where we have the ability to, uh, to very carefully uh, cleanse and and uh, prepare the the data from the cockpit voice recorder for playing. We uh, played the recording, and uh, we got a, a beautiful recording of a flight six months previous. So what they're equipped with is when you have a heavy landing, there's there's a G switch, and it it actually isolates the cockpit voice recorder. And so they'd had a heavy landing six months previous, 
and uh, and therefore the data had been isolated and uh, and during that six month period the cockpit voice recorder hadn't been reset okay so um, we actually got a, a very uh, a very clear which was incredible how, how damaged how badly damaged the cockpit voice recorder was but it it's protected for that and uh, we got a very clear recording of a flight in the united states some six months prior and what about you mentioned in most planes there are two black boxes cockpit and the other one was the other one recovered no the flight data recorder that it wasn't required uh, for uh, for this type of operation the um, civil aviation safety authority didn't require them to have a flight data recorder so that limited our ability to really understand what happened in the cockpit because we, we had no voice recorder sure. we had no flight data recorder and i can understand if you can't answer this question but was a solution found as to the cause of the crash or you're not able to say yeah uh, the final reports published on the website the weather was incredibly challenging uh, for the for the crew and in fact the, uh, another boeing 737 fire bomber had been out to Anaminabe and uh, and had suffered uh, uncommanded rolls of about 45 degrees and uh, as the 737 was coming back from Richmond, it passed the C-130 going out to the fire and uh, they had an exchange and, and they said to each other, listen, we, you know, we've just had this uh, uncommanded rolls of, uh, of 45 degrees. It's, it's um, 50 knots and ma- there's stand- yeah. standing yeah. waves, mountain waves, there's rotors. Uh, even if we're tasked, we're not going back. Okay. And uh, and so the you know so that's what the C one thirty said to the C to the seven three seven said to the C one thirty and the crew continued. They did an assessment. They they decided that uh, it was suitable to continue. And uh, unfortunately, they um, they did the bombing uh, and turned into a fifty knot tailwind. Uh, and there were. Um, mountain waves and and, uh, and extremely turbulent sure. conditions and uh, suffered a, a loss of control of the aeroplane. Moving on to, well, just as a, a bit of an aside, do you remember the 1988 film Rain Man? I do. Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman playing the autistic brother of, uh, of Tom Cruise. There's a scene in that movie I'd like to play the audio for. Have a listen to this. There's a Delta right there. I mean, it leaves a midnight ray, you know, but Delta, how's Delta? The Delta crashed August 2nd, 1985, Lockheed L-1011, Dallas, Fort Worth. Right, Terrible winds. All airlines. 135. All passengers. All airlines have crashed at one time or another. That doesn't mean that they are not safe. Qantas. Well, Qantas? Qantas never crashed. Qantas? Never crashed. Well, that's... Crashed. I mean, that's going to do me a lot of good, Ray. Yeah. You see, Qantas doesn't fly to L.A. out of Cincinnati. You have got to get to Melbourne. Australia. Melbourne anyway, Australia. anyway, he goes on talking about how Australia's the safe, blah, blah, blah. Two questions, I suppose. Firstly, what has made in the past Qantas so safe? We have an enviable safety record. You know, not only Qantas, but but uh, you know, before that there was Ansett and and, uh, and now it's, it's Virgin Australia, it's Rex. One, we we have uh, very well trained professional pilots that take their job extremely seriously, and same with the engineering staff. The companies in Australia invest in in the best technology. They invest in. Uh, renewal of their aircraft, you know, so we haven't got, by and large, uh, ageing aircraft, you know, that they, they continue to reinvest in that. We're very lucky with the weather. You know, we don't have snow, we don't have ice. So I, I think it's a combination of factors, but, uh, um, you know, you, you can never get too complacent either because, uh, as my former boss said to me, if you're not nervous about aviation safety, then you don't know what's going on. That film was 1988, and what... Dustin, or what Ray, the character, said is absolutely true. And I'm not going to dwell on anything in particular other than saying 2023 hasn't been too kind for Qantas in terms of public relations. Six flights haven't made it to their destination starting on the 18th of January and finishing on the 24th of January. Not what has gone wrong, but what seems to be underpinning that publicity dilemma for Qantas? Personally, uh, you know, you, you, you look at uh, decision-making by crews and uh, let's say you get a warning light. Qantas doesn't take any chances. You've got a warning light in the, in the aeroplane and if there's any risk to passengers, uh, we're going to go back or we're going to divert to somewhere else. So it's actually a, um, a routine uh, and very well rehearsed um, procedure for you know aircraft to turn back, and that whether it's Qantas or anyone else, it, it's um, I'd much rather be flying with a pilot 
who is conservative and follows procedures and, and gets me back safely on the ground and decides that, uh, that the lights, uh, light doesn't really matter and let's just push on. So um, it happens every day. Sometimes the, the media get a hold of it and it, it, it appears luck, as if yeah. it's a spike, but, but actually uh, malfunctions happen every day in the, in the aviation industry. Point taken, and perhaps that is another reason why Qantas, according to Rain Man, is the safest airline in the world because it does do those sorts of things. Was that a fair yeah, comment? I never have any problem getting on any airline, any Australian airline whatsoever and, and flying. I won't say the same for some internationals. We won't make the comparison. Let me anecdotally again share a story. A very close friend of mine wanted to fly from Melbourne to Perth. They got on the plane halfway to Perth. The pilot comes on and says, ladies and gentlemen, we have to fly back to Melbourne because we have a problem with the toilet. Now, my very close friend said to me, if we were halfway there, why didn't the pilot continue to Perth rather than turning back to Melbourne? I'm not asking you to answer that question. I'm just saying, again, that's another example of Australian safety. No, no, I think, uh, I think you know, conservative is good. And, uh, and once again, sometimes, you know, you might have uh, the engineering equipment to... Um to fix an aircraft at one base and not not have the engineering equipment to fix it at the other base, you know. So ten out of ten, ten out of ten. You, you are now deputy chair, Air Services Australia. What are you most proud of with its history? I think that the workforce is uh, is is second to none. They're committed. They're smart. They do their job extremely well. Working in a shift working organisation is always difficult because everybody has you know reasons, uh, family and and uh, sickness and the rest of it. But you know we we keep the system going twenty four seven, three sixty five. So I'm immensely proud of the people that work. Uh, both in air traffic control and in aviation rescue and firefighting, and and in the um, you know the supporting um, engineering uh, areas as well, because it's um, it's a complex network of uh, of radars and radio frequencies and and uh, technology to to keep going and uh, and we do it and we do it well. What is the allied uh, job to that with the CSIRO, the Marine National Facility? I've got yeah, I've got two other jobs. I've, I'm on the uh, I'm on the board of the Australian Aviation Hall of Fame, and uh, I'm on the steering committee, which is a governance committee on the CSIRO's Marine National Facility, and and basically that runs the research vessel, the investigator, and uh, and basically the uh, CSIRO vessel RV investigator is out there conducting a range of scientific exper- experiments throughout the country and and in Antarctica. Um, uh, that support uh, the government policy. So, for example, uh, global warming. Uh, there's a number of experiments conducted in the oceans about global warming. There's um, all sorts of examination of plankton, uh, a whole range of scientific experiments, and uh, and that basically space on the ship is bid for by um, by the scientists at CSIRO, and the steering committee looks at the merits of uh, of each of those scientific experiments and. Uh, and, and approves those voyages. So it's a fascinating part. I particularly am interested in, obviously, marine safety. Sure. And, uh, you know, you, you know, we've had a couple of ship fires, um, not the RV investigator, but some other government ships uh, down in the Antarctic, and uh, that's not the sort of place that you you really uh, need to take any chances at all. So no. I, I try to look at the voyages from a safety point of view. You're also, are you not part of the Qantas Founders Museum? Yes, I'm a life member of the Qantas Founders Museum. What does that involve? Life member, uh, so uh, every now and again, getting on an aeroplane, going long reach, attending a function. Did you ever get to personally thank Alan Joyce for his uh, contribution to your sleep out? I did, yes. I, I, I know Alan quite well, so uh, uh, I did thank him. And um, and did you say uh, that Dick Smith gave me more than you did? <laughs> no, but I, that's, I might do that for next time. <laughs> thank you for the hint. Please don't quote me. Fascinating career, Greg. I, this has been a great honour to talk to you, particularly about the MH370. But probably the most colourful part of your entire career is QIC of barbecues for the Royal Australian Air Force. Yes, yes I was a very good... In fact, uh, Bill Hayden visited one day. I think he was foreign minister. And the guys did a very naughty thing. They they laced his steak with as much chilli as they could. You know, that's the kind of, oh. it's the kind of thing that, you you know, sometimes you think is funny at the time. But um, Did he eat anyway. it? To his credit, he ate it. Yep, yep. Yeah, good on him. Good on him. It's a bit like Tony Abbott eat, eating an onion. I, yeah. <laughs> if I'm asked to do it, I'm doing it. So the C-130 firefighting, I was staying in Cooma and I went to McDonald's to get breakfast one morning. And uh, I'm, I'm working, trying to work the machine, uh, how to order my bacon and egg McMuffin and a cup of coffee. 
And uh, anyway, I tap on the shoulder and I turned around. Now, I'm wearing my ATSB Chief Commissioner shirt that I go to accident sites in. And I turn around and there's four or five grubby, filthy firefighters all blackened in the face and they'd been out there all night fighting fires out, out in the Kuma region. And this guy says to me, just want you to know that we think you're doing a great job up there on the crash site and thank you for doing what you're doing. It was Tony Abbott. Yeah. So say what you like. Here's a guy, former Prime Minister of Australia, out there with the, the grubbiest of all, blackened in the face fighting fires. Sadly. Politics aside, you look at any leader in this country, state, federal or local, any of them, and he has to stand head and shoulders above all of the rest simply for that, the fact that he is there as Prime Minister out there fighting fires. And he eats McDonald's too. And he, <laughs> and he eats McDonald's. He and Dick Smith should do a partnership. <laughs> Look, honestly, Greg, you have a, an amazing career and it's been a real honour talking to you and working through the radio station that I work for in Sydney. If I can do anything to publicise what you're doing, please feel free to get in touch any time you like. Really appreciate that, Gareth. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice which is one in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.